ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm one of your hosts, and your only host today. I'm Chris Henry, the museum manager here at EAA. And uh, with me, we have a very special guest. Uh, George Luz Jr. is here. And if you're any fan of the miniseries that HBO did years ago, Band of Brothers, uh, that name, George Luz, uh, is probably uh, near the top of uh, your favorites. Uh, He was uh, pretty heavily depicted in that miniseries. For those who don't know, uh, we're talking about uh, an HBO miniseries that focused on a real unit, the 101st Airborne 506 PIR Easy Company, uh, mainly. So, um, George, first off, thank you for making the trip out here. You're here to be part of our speaker series that we do uh, every month in the museum. It's going to be a great night. We've already had a good time here so far, and uh, just thank you for making that trip. Well, hey, thank you so much, Chris. This has really been super. I've enjoyed coming here at the EAA and everything that it has to offer, and it has plenty to offer, which I think we scratched the surface yesterday. Absolutely, yeah. We have more adventure awaiting yet today. So, um, well, let me me talk to you first. You know, growing up as a kid, you know, I think we all – you know, view our parents as our parents and, and, our, and our authority figures. But when did you first kind of get any sort of inkling that that your dad had done something kind of big or historic? Well, in in my case, it started in 1965. I was nine years old, and my mom and dad were going to these reunions, and they took my sister and I to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Now, the reunions began in 1946. The first reunion was in Indianapolis. So in 1965, we drove to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which was probably a two-day drive that my father did nonstop. My mom wasn't overly happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) But we did that drive, and we got there. and, uh, And remember, when you're nine years old and you're on a vacation, I was happy it had a pool. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, it had a pool, so I was pretty excited. But so it gave me an opportunity to kind of observe my dad in this, in this environment with all these guys and their wives. And as the years had clicked by, I had an opportunity to learn more about what was going on. You know, my dad, there was a lot of correspondence with the men. It wasn't like it was just the reunion every year. There was constantly letters and cards and Christmas cards and things like that. So for me, it was an evolution of learning about my dad, seeing these books, you know, the book Rendezvous with Destiny, the Curahee scrapbook, you know, all those things were laying around the house in my dad's kind of area and things like that. So if you were inquisitive enough, you could kind of thumb through them and look and talk. And so it was early on for me to learn about the men and uh, so that was the – but in my world, I thought everybody had a father that served in World War II. In most cases, they did. And they all had guys like this. So I thought everybody was experiencing the same stuff that I was experiencing. But in most cases, a lot of the guys didn't go to reunion. So I was very fortunate. Wow. And, uh, you know, were there a lot of other kids um, or families that would go to the reunions as well that you'd, you'd meet and, and maybe uh, continued friendships with? Well, the the unusual thing, I guess, 
was when I was when I was in nine. I don't remember any kids there. So I went when uh, let's see, I went in sixty five, and I went in sixty eight, and I went in seventy, and uh, and then I remember starting to meet some of the little kids that I couldn't even remember their names. But it wasn't until nineteen eighty one, the San Diego reunion, Buck Compton uh, uh, played a big role in that one, and. His uh, daughters were there, Tracy and Cindy, and Walter Gordon had brought a couple of his daughters there as well, B.B. Uh, Gordon and Linda Gordon. So I was able to meet them, and Don Malarkey brought his daughter, Mary Ann. And my parents actually even brought my old girlfriend, Nina. She was a dear friend of the family, and uh, so they brought Nina out. So it was really neat. So it was actually my first time to meet more of the kids. That's really cool. Pretty special. And it had to be a pretty, you know, like you said, it's a special unit that already is having these reunions right after the war. Uh, And I think that's obviously because of what they went through during the war. And let's talk a little bit about that. What... What was Easy Company? What what it, what exactly was so special about the 101st? For those who maybe aren't familiar with World War II history, let's talk a little bit about what paratroopers and uh, uh, the 101st and Easy Company did. Well, you know, it was a unique operation. You know, it's not something that was tried in the United States military. You know, there was, I think the Germans had done some airborne or the, the Russians maybe had also done some airborne, but it was unique to to the um, United States. And it was all volunteer. And I know in the case of uh, the 506, you know, there was some 1,800 officers applied. And in the case of the the enlisted men, I think there were like 5,300 just to get, uh, you know, a company, the entire company. So you had to really be special. And I think Bill Garnier had said it, you know, you had to be the cream of the cream. Do you know what what drove your dad to want to join? Well, I've got a clip tonight <laughs> that shows why he joined. I initially had thought, maybe, you know, maybe it was, you know, just this grand idea that, you know, I want to be in a special unit and do something really extraordinary. And But actually, the clip tonight, and I'll tell you right now, is, spoiler alert, is he joined because it paid $50 extra a month. <laughs> and... If you remember in the series, Maynard was being interviewed. You remember before they had the interviews with the men and all. So Maynard was being interviewed, and and when he said, uh, you know, this pays fifty dollars extra a month. You know, you see Maynard raise his hand. <laughs> so my dad was in that category of, you know, he wanted to. Uh, he he grew up in the Depression. So in my dad's family, there were ten brothers and sisters. And um, so they, uh, money was a driver in that. So they they get accepted for uh, for training, and their next step would be to go to Camp Tacoa, right? Yeah. So they went to Camp Tacoa, and uh, the the training there. So my dad got there, I think, sometime in August, uh, late July or in August, and they were there all the way up until uh, December. I think December first, they made the march from. Uh, from Tacoa to Atlanta. So they did a lot of training there. And when you look at the 506, they trained for pretty much 18 months prior to jumping into D-Day. 
So it wasn't like an infantry unit that would train and boom, they were over there. These guys trained and because they were a rifle group. And Walter Gordon had said in his interview with, uh, with Ambrose, you know, that their responsibility, they were like, Walter said they were sprinkled in to the battle. They were going to be sprinkled. The conception was they were going to be sprinkled into the battlefield to create mayhem. And that's kind of what they did was, uh, you know, just, you know, fly on in, land in, and then just create mayhem. Once the, once the Germans with the artillery and the mechanized tanks, you know, they would just get wiped out. But that's why they were in there to kind of get it started and then, um, and then move along. Did, uh, did your dad ever talk about, you know, if, you've, if you're a fan of the series, there was a, a mountain that they would run. Uh, and what I always thought was interesting was it was a grueling, you know, run or hike and that they would be ordered to do it for training and then they would get bored and in their own time to go and do it to try to beat their own time. Did, did they ever talk about uh, running Curahi or anything like that and the, the hard training they did? Well, you know, when you, when you listen to the guys – um, and I think uh, Rod Stroll had mentioned that too. He said, you know, we just hated to do the thing and then we were doing it. So there's an interesting comment, and I'll make it tonight about, uh, I think in Marcus Brotherton's book, when he interviewed Ed Tipper, you know, Ed looked up at the mountain on the very first day when they were on the obstacle course, and he said, I bet the last thing they're going to make us do is run up that hill. And he said a few minutes later, a whistle blew. And it was like, time to change. We're running up Curry <laughs> <laughs> on the very first day. And um, so he, uh, they changed and they ran up and, you know, three miles up, three miles down. I know you've been there as well. And on the way up, there's as many downs in uh, as ups and on the way down is as many ups so it's grueling it is grueling and you know these guys were just in great shape walter gordon was interesting because he was one of the bigger guys he was he was probably six feet tall and and maybe 200 pounds and he would characterize all these other guys in the unit as gymnasts because they were all much smaller and they had an ability they were much more nimble and Walter had always felt as though he would wash out just because of, you know, his ruggedness. And he said, I lost my weight drop by drop. So the uh, running up Curry, doing the obstacle course really got these guys in shape. Wow. Um, so then, of course, from so, and if, if you don't know, Camp Tacoa has a wonderful museum. It's just uh, to the east of, Georgia, of Atlanta. Uh, in Georgia, uh, definitely encourage you to go there. You can actually run up Curhi. Hopefully, you don't uh, encounter a large uh, snake as I did. And then uh, I took about five steps up Curhi. I did not make three miles up, three miles down. I, I think I took four steps and uh, <laughs> saw a huge snake and said, "Well, I'm, I'm on Curhi. That's good enough." So <laughs> I always wondered. You know, people talk about can you can you get into the footsteps of World War II vets? And uh, it turns out uh, I can't. I, I don't. Uh, I couldn't even go through the training that these guys did. So, um, so from Georgia. Uh, do you know what? Uh, do you know like what his uh, progression was? Like, it, was it there to England that those guys uh, went? Well, what they did was, you know, so they they leave uh, Tokoa and then they did that march uh, to Benning, 
and uh, I mean, sorry, they went from uh, Tacoa to Atlanta, and then after that, then they went to Benning later that month to get their jump training. And, um, yeah, so then and from, from there, there were several places that they had gone to after that. I think uh, they went up to Cumberland, New Cumberland up in Tennessee, and they did some maneuvers there as well. And, and, and actually, last year's Easy Company reunion we had at Fort Benning, and that was pretty neat to, to go there, to know that our dads trained there. And, uh, and then I looked... I looked at, uh, at Cumberland, Tennessee, to see if there was anything remaining there to see, but uh, there wasn't anything there um, to go and see that was there before. So, but but that's just kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of of what they did. And like I said, it was 18 months of training, so you know they knew the guys extremely well in a profile the way a guy wore his hat or his helmet, whatever it was, that, you know, they could recognize guys, so they were really tight as far as that goes. Do you think at this point in their military career, which is pretty early on, that they had any idea of what they were going to do? Um, you know, it was always interesting when you hear about guys like that went on the Doolittle Raid and things, that they would kind of discuss what they thought while they were in training they were going to end up doing. Do you think your dad and his comrades had any ideas that they were going to uh, jump Normandy? Well, I think, you know, I had a general understanding, you know, something's going on. But like Walter, Walter Gordon, I always referenced Walter. You know, he just said, you know, I knew the range of my machine gun from here to there. That's all I knew. And that's what they, that's what I knew. I knew my serial number on my machine gun. And, uh, you know, they all knew they were going to be doing something. But I don't think, it wasn't until the sand tables came out uh, that they were briefed on that, that they knew exactly where they were going. And Wow. So they go um, – it, it, well, you know, and something else I want to touch on, again, this unit was so tight-knit that they stayed so close all the way through the reunions. I have to think that that started in Curahee and in, and in Camp Tacoa. Yeah, yeah, and I agree, and I agree. Because in the guys, when you talked with the guys who uh, were wounded – when they went to the repo depot, they made sure they got back to their unit. And that was one of the important things. That continuity was. And, uh, you know, they, they would go AWOL from the repo depot. You know, they'd find a way. And it was amazing when you listen to some of the guys talking about, you know, getting out of the place and then finding their way back. And how did they do that? You know, was there like a bunch of trucks going in every direction? And, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> they didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Texas. Hey, where are you guys? So, but, but they were a can-do uh, generation for sure. Wow. Um, so from the training, they deployed to England and up as a, a pottery uh, army airfield uh, is where they ended up for basically the first uh, jump, correct? Yeah, yeah. So they were training in Alborn, in the area of Alborn. And, you know, for me, it's really neat. I went, my very first time to Alborn was in 2004. I went on a tour retracing my father's footsteps with uh, Garnier, Bill Garnier, and Babe Heffron. It was a wonderful trip. And so we went to Alborn, where they trained. 
and we went into the countryside and we went to Little Coat House, which is where headquarters was, Colonel Singh's headquarters. And so over the years going back and, you know, going to the different bars that they were at, uh, it's, it's really neat. And then through a friend, uh, a friend Tim, he introduced me to Gene Farr. And Gene Farr's grandfather was the Barnes family who housed Winters and Welch. So my last few trips, I've been able to meet and have uh, tea with them or lunch with them, and then they've been able to address um, our group and tell us some stories about Winters and the relationship with the Barnes family. So, yeah, so that's what, um, uh, you know, they train there. One of the things I always would have liked to know was I've been able to close the loop on a few of the things about where exactly my dad was, but one of them was, what fence did he have Sobel got? <laughs> I often wonder, you know, and that's a kind of a nebulous, you know, which one is there? It feels everywhere. Wow. So you're just trying to say, all right, so who knows? Who would know what fence was that? You know, what? You know, maybe there was a daily report that day. Okay, so they were in this particular area and things like that. So yeah, you know, maybe. Maybe in my spare time, I'll see if I can dig up some of those daily reports. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> um, so they get to a staging area at some point where it, it's going to go. They're getting ready for the mm. big show, which is uh, the 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 D-Day uh, 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 jump, uh, which would be in the night prior to the landings. Um, you know, and it's something that the United States had only done once before, not in the uh, European theater necessarily. It was in the Mediterranean theater. They had done a paratroop uh, um, uh, assault, I believe. But um, first time for this unit uh, to, to do it, I believe, for the 101st, um, especially these these veterans. Um, what do you think the mindset was? Uh, what were they doing in those hours leading up to, to the D-Day invasion? Well, you know, just sitting under the wings of the plane, I'm sure, you know, in that anticipation, and you know, the first, uh, the first attempt uh, was xed because of the weather, and and then when they finally jumped, you know, my dad describes it quite well, and you'll get a chance to hear that tonight, but he describes it quite well on jumping in, and then some of the other things that you won't hear tonight, uh, my dad telling me the stories of how thick the anti-aircraft was. And, you know, jumping in and watching some of his buddies getting shot. You know, he's, he's you know, they're all just trying to maneuver their, their parachute to land safely. And, you know, he's looking around and maneuvering and looking at guys getting shot and, you know, that had to be terrifying for these guys. So, um, but yeah, so you'll hear tonight and how we landed and how we connected with an officer from a headquarters company and and uh, and then moved along. Now, what, were, do you know some of the other uh, veterans that were in the plane with him? Like, was he in Winter's plane? Was he in a different aircraft? Uh, do you know anything like that? Yeah, he was, uh, Harry Welch uh, was the jump master on his uh on his, and you know, you've seen the story or read the story about how my dad 
he was fifth in the stick, and he was carrying the batteries to the radio. And uh, I think uh, Frank Bracani, and as a, I've got a great clip of Frank telling the story tonight. And Frank telling the story about, you know, landing. And so anyway, my dad was carrying the batteries, and all these guys were pretty small. And I think you, when you saw in the series, when Joe Toy was talking about all of the equipment that they were carrying, and then these leg bags. So my dad was struggling, like most of the guys, to get on the plane. And because he was the radio slash the radio man, he had asked Harry Welch when they were in the plane, hey, can you get me closer to the door? Because I'm not going to be able to move fast enough. And we all know moving is the key thing, getting out of the plane fast enough. So Harry moved him with Cobb. And Cobb went to the fifth position, and my dad went to the second position, and that's when, when the uh, when the uh, the anti aircraft started to fly. Um, that's when Cobb got hit in the ass. <laughs> can you say ass? <laughs> I think we can. can so. Okay. Wow, that's so, incredible. It's just a turn of fate that he wasn't standing in the spot that he should have been. Yeah, and. In episode four, there's a reference to Cobb railing on the replacements because they were wearing a, uh, a citation that the 101st had was awarded for jumping into Normandy. And Cobb, in his surly way, said to one of them, you know, you didn't jump into Normandy. And that's when, <laughs> that's when uh, Randleman nudged in and said, hey, Cobb, do you remember? You didn't jump into Normandy either. <laughs> and that was why, because he switched with my father. Wow. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, if you, were, if you were wounded, you couldn't jump. You had to sit on the plane. So, um, and it, I'm sure it wasn't any fun coming back. Wow, that'd be, yeah, that'd be a rough, A, rough ride back going through any aircraft fire, but also you, you probably feel like you were on the sidelines uh, you know, of the Super Bowl, you got all the way mm -hmm. through all that training, and then uh, you couldn't go. Um, so your dad uh, parachutes into Normandy, June sixth, forty four. Uh, what 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 does he all go through? Um, you know, uh, what was their next step? Uh, boots on the ground, because I know they got kind of scattered on on D Day. Yeah, my dad talks about not getting back to the unit until like. Uh, eight in the morning. Uh, some of the guys didn't get back to the unit for days. But yeah, so my dad got back to the unit that morning. And then he didn't take part in the, he didn't take part in the, in the, in the break corps. We saw that very well demonstrated in the, in the series. So he didn't take part in that. And then, uh, but then, you know, the tempo picked up and, and then they were on the Carantan. And uh, so, yeah, so he was involved in Caratin, and you saw that depicted in the series as well. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so just, you know, dodging bullets, dodging bullets and moving forward and taking ground. So you're, as we progress here, your dad, um, which was amazing, went through Normandy, uh, helped take Carantan, uh, takes part in Market Garden, uh, and then plays a role in the Battle of the Bulge, which for those who don't know, I believe still today is the la largest U.S. Army engagement ever. 
Uh, and it was during one of the coldest and worst winters they'd experienced in that area. And our troops deployed without full winter gear uh, and, and, and short on equipment, short on ammo, and quickly became surrounded uh, out in the, uh, in the, in the woods, uh, out of Bastogne. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your dad talked about, uh, his experience at Bastogne. And then you told me you'd, you've actually gotten a chance to go to those woods. Uh, you got to tell me about that as well. Yeah, I've been there many times. Um, I don't know, maybe 10 times I've been to Bastogne. And so it's really eerie to, to stand there in those woods in the Borjak and just kind of listen. And I usually try to find kind of a quiet spot. And I'll just kind of look around and listen as the wind blows through the trees and just imagine what they experienced. And, um, you know, my dad, my dad had written up, uh, he didn't write a lot of stuff, but he did write up parts of his story. And uh, there, there's the one story about being in Bastogne and uh, when Muck and Pinkala were killed. And the movie was uh, drama, but uh, what my but the book was more accurate as far as what actually happened when Muck and Pinkala were killed. The the movie portrayed it as my dad was crawling to the foxhole, but it actually my dad was in his own foxhole, and I'll read that to, I'll read that tonight. But essentially what happened was, you know, they were all in their foxholes uh, that night and the artillery started. And uh, my dad talks about, you know, one of the shells hit really close. And when they all got up afterwards, uh, they said, hey, go check out Milk and Pink Collar. And uh, so my dad went over there and their foxhole, you know, just, as you saw, just took a direct hit. And uh, so he pulled the sleeping bags out and boom, they were dead. So... Um, you know, it's those kind of images that, you know, you wonder when um, when the soldiers come home and they deal with that kind of stuff. And um, one of the amazing things about the series was some of the soldiers who didn't come home, we've had a chance to meet the family members, the cousins, the nieces, the nephews, Tim Pinkala, Alex's uh, nephew. Um, Skip Muck's nephew, uh, nieces, meeting them. Um, if you remember, Skip used to talk about his uh, girlfriend, Faye Tanner. He called her Sweet Faye Tanner. Uh, met her. There was a dedication to the monument, uh, a dedication to the families of the Muck family and the Nyland family. There was a connection with them. They both lived in the same town, and the Nyland family was the genesis for the movie Saving Private Ryan, as you know. And so it's been an extraordinary circumstance to meet them because they kind of knew, uh, you know, we had an uncle who was killed in Bastogne or in World War II, and that's kind of all they really knew. A lot of people didn't get a chance to find out more. And it wasn't until the book, not much, even the book, but when the series came out, they were really able to get a grasp of how they were killed. And um, so that's been one of the more profound things. So your your dad, uh, after the end of the war, comes home. Um, 
and he just goes right back uh, to work. What did he do when he can't, comes home from the war? Yeah, so he uh, we lived in a mill town, and uh, so he got into textiles, textile mill, and he did that for a while. And then he also worked for a defense contractor, and, um, and then the base closed. So then he worked for a guy building homes, and uh, he did that for quite a few years, and then he uh, ended up working for the state. The state of Rhode Island. Wow. How did you first catch wind, or how did you first find out, maybe it was through research or, or something else, that this miniseries was going to be made and your dad was going to be in it? Yeah, Winters had done a great job of staying connected with, when my dad was killed in 1998, Winters continued to send my mother every scrap of anything related to the reunions or, in this particular case, the miniseries, potential miniseries. And so it came from uh, Winters as far as pay attention. Uh, uh, Ambrose sold the rights to two books, Band of Brothers and, I believe, Citizen Soldier. And that's where um, Save It Prior Ryan came from. And uh, so it was from that um, that there was discussions about that. And then um, when uh, my mom received a phone call from, I think it was Eric Genderson, one of the writers, and just was trying to do some background on my dad and stuff like that. So that was kind of cool. I just happened to be there that day. And uh, it must have been a Wednesday night. Because um, I we always go to my mom and dad's on Wednesday night, uh, Prince Spaghetti night. And I would do my laundry on Wednesdays. Well, mom would do my laundry. And so it had to be a Wednesday night. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the time frame. It, was, it must have been around, uh, my dad died October uh, 15th of 98. So it kind of, there was, you know, some uh, uh, rumblings that something was going on. And as it progressed on, it developed into that. And. Wow. Now, um, did uh, did you get to visit the the set at all, or, or any of the production areas? Yeah, during the during the two thousand reunion in New Orleans, which was wrapped around the opening of the D Day, the National D Day Museum, the Easy Company reunion, and HBO had a very big presence at that reunion in two thousand. Tracy Gordon assisted Bill Garnier in putting together that particular reunion and did a great job. So you had those three events coming together, so that was really neat. At that event, I got a chance to meet a lot of wonderful people from HBO, Ivan Schwartz, and a lot of the, some of the writers were there, no other the actors were there, but they did have a guy named Joe Hobbs, and Hobbs was the main costume guy. And uh, he was an English guy, terrific guy. And I was talking to him about the set. And I said, and everybody was asking him questions about, hey, can I get one of those M42 jackets or this or that? And I said, hey, can I get one of those pairs of boots? And he said, those jump boots. And he said, well, George, if you come over on your own steam, I'll give you a pair. So, so that was in June. And uh, I was able to coordinate that with my wife. So 
I think it was late August, early September, we went to England. And Joe picked us up, and, you know, we checked into the hotel and all that stuff. And then uh, we ended up going to the set for a few days. So I got a chance to see um, some of the some of the scenes. I think uh, one of the scenes I got a chance to see was the uh, John Julian, if you remember when John Julian got shot. And that really affected Babe. You know, I was dear friends with Babe for years, and Julian, that was, that was uh, so I saw that. The, um, some of the other scenes, the Chuck Grant, when Chuck Grant got shot in the head, and then they got to the hospital, I got a chance to see that being filmed. And then meeting all of the actors was really neat. These guys, these kids were playing, you know, guys that I knew, guys that I grew up around. And I wasn't Luz, but I was Luz's kid. So it was really special for me, and I think they enjoyed that I was able to come to, to the set. And um, I was very fortunate, and I, I wasn't the only one, you know, through the relationships with the men and their, and their families, uh, the Gordons went over too. Uh, Tracy and Gay, BB and Linda and Big Mama, uh, all went over as well. And and a lot of the guys went over too. Garnier and Heffron went over. And, you know, when, when a veteran went over, it was rock star status, you know. And I think there were several other guys that had gone over. I think Buck Taylor went over. So, yeah, so several other guys had gone over there. So that was really cool for the actors and Tom Hanks and Spielberg and all of the people um, who were very, very... They took this about as serious, this project as serious as anything they've ever done before. I have to ask, what was it like? Um, what was it like getting to meet the actor who was portraying your dad? I mean, that had to be kind of surreal. Yeah, that was cool. Joe had brought, my wife and I stayed at the Savoy when we first got there for a couple of days. So Joe had come over with uh, Percani. And Luz and one other actor. So it was really cool. It was really cool. And Rick did a super job, you know, portraying my dad. He didn't have the luxury of having my dad around like a lot of the actors did. But what he did have was, you know, there was the Book Band of Brothers. There was Webster's book, which is a super book. And there's quite a bit of my dad. I don't know if you've read Webster's book, but about halfway through, there's a lot of my dad in there how crazy my dad was. So, <laughs> so, um, but what he did have was he had the ability to talk to Prakani, and Prakani and my dad were buddies. My dad was buddies with everybody, but they were really tight. So uh, it, was, it was great. Uh, so he could ask him questions through Prakani, the real Prakani. And, uh, uh, but, but that was really neat to get to meet Rick and uh, and I've actually I saw Rick recently in um, the National World War II Museum. They had a big event, and uh, they invited a lot of the actors and the writers and the producers and directors, and uh, they invited a handful of us kids, which was really cool. Well, and I think it's interesting that this miniseries that was made, I really think it's it's larger than just a miniseries, and it's actually larger even than just one unit. 
because I I think it was kind of eye-opening to a big different generation of here's why we honor our World War II vets. This is what this is just what one unit went through, and this is um, why we call them the greatest generation. And and I think there's a big spike in interest in World War II history because of Saving Private Ryan and because of Band of Brothers, uh, and then later the Pacific. That that truly is owed to that. It, it was something that the they got it out in front of a younger culture, and then got that younger culture interested in. History, studying, even reenacting, I think all a lot really came from a lot of that. I think you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know, I, I've done a lot with, I'm on the board of the World War II Foundation based in Rhode Island. We do World War II documentaries. And for several years, we would do events in Europe. And the enthusiasm with the younger kids was just over the top. And you're exactly right. And I think that's the great thing about, you know, Saving Private Ryan Band of Brothers. It really did provide that. And I and I think, you know, people ask me about what my dad would have thought. And what I think he would have thought was more than him getting accolades would be that this provided a lot of other people, a lot of other kids. You know, kids like me. Well, I'm not a kid at 66, but <laughs> yeah, kids like me and kids, my kids, or not that I have any kids, but an opportunity to say, geez, I wonder what my grandfather did. Or what did my grandfather, what did my dad do? And just kind of look into that. Because, you know, when the, when the guys came home from World War II, they came home. They came home and they plugged into the, a job or whatever it was. And it, um, but yeah, this provided a real great emphasis for people to be able to find out what their fathers did and mothers did in some cases. And you know, and I and I tell this: sixteen million American men and women served in World War II in the United States, and they all have a story. That's incredible, and you're helping carry that tradition forward by being a part of the tours that you can actually sign up for, go over there, and retrace the steps in Europe of where Easy Company went. Yeah, I'm so blessed to be able to do that, you know. We all have a purpose, I guess. And as I get older, this provides me that purpose. You know, I've been involved since I was nine years old. Yeah. But yeah. it provides me an opportunity to do maybe just a little bit more and to share more of the stuff that I know. Well, and you're bringing it to to a younger generation, and again, you're 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 there in real history, surrounded by the real places. Uh, it's almost uh, an equivalent here in the states of going to Gettysburg or something like that. I mean, it's it's truly a you know special scene that you're going to in these different locations. Um, I know we're fighting the clock here. Uh, I just want to say I'm thankful for for you making the trip out here, spending time with us, being a part of our speaker series and uh, and our Green Dot. And I know that folks who are listening, who are fans of the mini series, are going to absolutely love this. Is uh, is there one final closing thought that maybe you'd like to share uh, with with anybody who's uh, who's listening? Well, you know, um, it's a great ride. Look into your family history. Every family has a history, and you'll find some fascinating things about that, just like I have. My dad is no different than anybody else. And, uh, you know, t- 
talk to your fathers, your mothers, your grandmothers, your grandfathers, and find out what they did and, and really research to really honor their sacrifice like we all do. Well, thank you, George. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to, to the program tonight. And uh, thank you to all the listeners who support uh, The Green Dot with your kind uh, comments and feedback. Uh, it's because of those uh, comments and feedback that we're able to, to keep this going. And, and thank you again for, for your support and just continuing to listen to all the different adventures we have here in the, in the museum and, and abroad. So uh, I, we will have another episode coming soon. Um, but uh, in the meantime, continue to, uh, to listen to some of the archived ones that we have out there. And we'll catch you next time when we're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>